We are continuing uh, to go through the book of 1 Corinthians together. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 12. You can just follow along with me. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he, was, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it was true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are all, of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we can be kind of stepping through uh, 1 Corinthians, and, and we continue this morning, like I said, in uh, chapter 15. And in this letter, there's a bit of a curiosity for me, and that is, if you think about it, this letter that Paul is writing, he's writing it to the church, he's writing it to believers, that is, two people who presumably have faith in Christ and are growing the church in the city of Corinth. And so it's to this group of believers, followers of Jesus, Paul asks the question, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And this seems kind of shocking, right? Because this is the Christian church. And so how can that be the question? Like why else would they be Christian? Like isn't this sort of fundamental basics of Christianity? And he's, he's asking them, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And to this early church, I mean, there's a lot of things going on. There's different Jewish bodies that are part of this church, and there's Greek and Hellenistic bodies that are part of this church. And in fact, even when Christ was walking the earth, there were Jews that believed from Scripture that there would be resurrection, and some Jews that believed from Scripture that there would not be resurrection resurrection. And so there was disagreement among Jews and Judaism about the nature of resurrection. And so it's no surprise that maybe Paul is asking this church, like, how can you deny it? How is it that some of you are questioning this? And then you have the Greek or Hellenistic thinkers who, who are, tend to be a little bit more pragmatic. And the resurrection defeating death seems pretty out there. And so they too maybe have some questions. Some of those early believers. 
And what struck me about this, two things. One is that Paul is asking the early church, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? Which is surprising. And the second thing is that it's assumed that even if they struggle with the resurrection, they seem to have no issue with the thought that Jesus is the Son of God and that God exists. (laughs) And the reason why that strikes me is because if Paul was writing a letter to our church now, to the church in America, um, I don't know that resurrection would be the first thing he would be questioning about our thoughts and about our culture's feelings. I don't think we start with the assumption everything's real except the resurrection. I think many people start with the assumption how can it be real, including the resurrection. And so indeed, you have people inside the church struggling in faith and exploring their faith. This is normal. Then you have people outside the church that don't know what to do with faith and struggle with the idea that God is real and that Christ is who he says he is. And so this letter applies to us because even though the questions we ask might be different, and even though Paul might ask us a little bit differently how we engage with who Christ is and what he has done, the result is the same. Whether the question is how do some of you deny the resurrection or how do some of you deny Christ, period. The punchline is the same. Because you see, for Paul, Paul says if there is no resurrection, if there is no Christ, again, it doesn't matter where you drop in, then that means there's no resurrection. And and if there's no resurrection, Christ is not risen because if it doesn't exist, how could he? And if Christ himself is not risen, then we misrepresent God. If there is one. I mean, think about it. This is like a, a commandment-breaking kind of thing. It's like we're, we're, he says we're preaching in vain. It means the things that we talk about, the things that we study, the things that we say, if, if it's not true, then we're actually misrepresenting God. If in our culture, if God is not real, then we're representing something that's untrue. We're misrepresenting reality. And if that is true, it kind of keeps building Then he says, our faith is futile, we're still in sin, and everyone perishes. Super encouraging. It makes sense. I mean, if Christ came to die for our sins and Christ didn't die for our sins, if he didn't defeat death through his resurrection, then we're still in sin. We're still in our brokenness. If Christ wasn't the ultimate sacrifice, then we need to be dragging bulls into the sanctuary and sacrificing them on the altar. We need to go get a goat and lay our hands on it and send it outside, the scapegoat for all of our sins and all of our problems because it wasn't solved then in the person of Christ. If none of this is real and if it didn't happen, then our faith is futile. It's, it's like Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless. Everything's utterly meaningless. It's just, it doesn't make sense what we do or why we do it. And then ultimately, everyone perishes, meaning that when you die, you cease to exist. There is no more. 
you're done. You perish. And so Paul walks through that in the text and and he comes to the big conclusion. If you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe that Christ is the Son of God, if you don't believe in God, then we are to be pitied above everyone. Be pitied. And this makes sense to me, reflecting on it. I, I was trying to put my place put myself in Paul's place. But the reason why Paul would feel like he should be pitied because of what he gave up. I mean, he was a Roman citizen. He was well-to-do. He had authority. He had influence. He was well-liked, except by Christians, right? And then, boom, he, he experiences something miraculous and his whole life changes and he departs course and he, he gives up some of the rights that he has. I'm imagining his family, like his mom and dad raised him to be a good Jewish boy and now he's following this Christ, giving it all away, giving it up. Probably a break with his heritage, his history, his family, all for Christ. And if Christ isn't who he says he is, if he is not defeating death, then Paul should be pitied. Then I started reflecting uh, on this uh, kind of about myself. I was like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, Paul says our preaching that is in vain. I thought, yeah, I mean, I I went to school for eight years, spent $60,000. To become a pastor so I can stand in front of people and explicate scripture, teach on the Bible, to, to remind people of their forgiveness, to do communion. All these things all of a sudden ring hollow if it's not true. should be pitied. And then I think about like my wife and kids, having to get them up and ready on our own on Sunday mornings to get them to church because church is important because Christ is real and Christ is risen. But man, if it's not, she should be pitied. And my kids should be too. Forced to go to church. And then I got to thinking, yeah, I mean, what, is it, what does this mean for us? I mean, in general, are we to be pitied then? And I really pondered this because I thought, man, I don't know if everyone would feel that same loss that Paul feels or someone who professionally does church work would feel. I think this kind of illustrates a, a tension or an issue within our culture a little bit where... Like older generations, they, they really want you to believe the right thing, right? You got to believe that Jesus Christ came and died for you, and in him you are forgiven, and in him is eternal life. And so they hang their hat on that, and, and, and you should. But that's kind of where it stops. Believing the right thing. Uh, younger generations tend to struggle with just believing the right thing. They want to know that if everyone's believing the right thing, if everyone's following the right thing, then why aren't things different? 
Why aren't we being the right thing? Being different. And so sometimes I think in our culture, Christianity does ring hollow to a lot of people. Because it's not just about knowing the right thing or, or being the right thing. You can fall off the horse either way. I mean, you can believe all you want to, but if you don't act like it, if you don't embody it, then what does that really mean? And if you're constantly doing good, if you're trying to serve your neighbor and do all the right things and love your neighbor and turn your, your cheek to your enemy and, and speak out against injustice, there's no end to it. You can't stop the onslaught of suffering and sin in this world single-handedly by your good work. But whether we believe the right thing or we're trying hard to do the right thing, if Christ isn't real, it's a shame. We should be pitied. And so this is what Paul sets up in this section of 1 Corinthians. Is he just sort of raises the question, and it's a question, too, we struggle with. Who is Jesus? What did he do? What do we do with him? What does it mean for me? How now should I be that I have Christ? And Paul continues. He, he sort of, he, he, he's teasing the question, knowing the answer. There's a big turn. Paul says, but in fact, actually, all these things are true, but in fact, they're untrue because Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been. And he reiterated this ahead of this chapter. Paul said in chapter 15 at the beginning before he got into this question he says now i would remind you brothers of the gospel i preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word i preached to you for i delivered to you as of first importance this is the most important foundational thing paul is saying he delivered to the church in corinth and he's reminding them of this truth that he too received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then he, that is Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom at this writing, he says, are still alive. That is, they are walking around telling people about what they have experienced and witnessed the risen Christ standing in front of them. And he says, some have fallen asleep. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace towards me, it is not in vain. Because Paul himself witnessed Christ, when he was struck blind and heard his voice and was called from what he was into something new. We have the testimony, as Paul says, according to the scripture of what happened because so many people in the faith went ahead of us and some witnessed it and shared it and conveyed it and led people to Christ 
And so even though we may not see Jesus manifesting in front of us, even though we on our walk may not be struck blind and hear the voice of God, those in the faith who have gone before us, who have experienced Christ, who have seen him testify to the truth that he is risen. And we believe it. We may have doubts, but we have faith. We trust that he is risen. And that's believing the right thing. But what about the brokenness in the world and the sin in the world? I mean, what about death? And Paul addresses this too. Because obviously, the people in Corinth are still experiencing death. They're still experiencing poverty and struggle. And they're looking around them and they're like, if all this is real, if everyone's testifying to how Christ is changing the world and we're restored, we're made new, we're born again, and everything is going to be set into place. He says, as sin came into the world through Adam, life is going to come into the world through one man, Christ. If all this is true, then why does it not always feel like life? Why does it feel sometimes like death? And Paul says, Christ is the first fruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What he is saying is that Christ is the taste of what is to come, but it's not yet fully fulfilled. He is the beginning of the end. He is the beginning of life that will become and be part of everyone in him. And he says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, he says, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, he will reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It means this comes to a close. The final curtain call happens when all authority and power are under Christ. And what that means is we still experience war because there are authorities and powers in this world that are not faithful to Christ. They're not of Christ. And so they kill and they take and they fight. There's shenanigans in governments because they're authorities that are not of Christ. And so people suffer still at the hands of rulers and authorities and people. But it says the final, the final enemy that is going to be destroyed is death. That is when all those who have died in Christ are called into new life and resurrected. And this is different than what we tend to think. What I mean is, like right now, we have loved ones. Like we're going to watch a video here in a little bit in this service um, honoring those who have died in faith, who believe the testimony of the Scriptures, who believed in the resurrection of the dead, but guess what? They're still dead. Because the fulfillment 
in Christ hasn't happened yet, and that fulfillment is resurrection. It's new life. It's being called together in and through Christ. Death is destroyed. There is no more suffering. There is no more pain. There is no more tears. No worldly authority or power can take control, can move in, can subjugate, can go against. It's all under Christ, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord as they bow to him, and everyone in him is brought into the new creation and the new kingdom. And so our preaching is not in vain. Our struggles and our faith are not fruitless. Everything is not meaningless. Christ is the first fruits. And as we go in faith following him, others experience a taste of what is to come as we worship and follow him. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, we prepare together to receive Holy Communion, we just take a moment and go to God and seek His mercy and grace. And so join me now as we go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, Lord and giver of life, we, we don't always have the strongest faith and we don't always have the right beliefs. But in the midst of the uncertainty and the confusion, uh, we can continually just look to the cross of Christ. The way that He showed up and the way He lived showed us what is most true, and what is most faithful. And so, Lord, for the ways that we um, contribute to suffering in the world, through our words and our actions, through our inactions, we just come to you now and ask for your grace to forgive us. And Lord, there are so many things in our hearts and minds that just go unnamed, that can't be spoken, but we just take a moment now, and in a moment of silence, we just bring them to you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God, our Heavenly Father, did indeed send his one and only Son, Jesus, into the world to die on the cross for us so that we might be forgiven and through him inherit eternal and everlasting life. Through the love of him, your Father, God, and through his Son, Jesus, your sins are forgiven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.